Hello and welcome to the Meditation Conversation, the podcast to support your spiritual revolution. I'm your host, Kara Goodwin, and today I'm so excited to have Mark Williams and Dr. Danny Penman. Mark and Dr. Penman are authors of Mindfulness, Finding Peace in a Frantic World, and the upcoming book, Deeper Mindfulness. Mark is a professor of clinical psychology at Oxford University. He co-developed mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Danny is a meditation teacher, writer, and journalist. And in 2014, he jointly won the British Medical Association's Best Book Award for Mindfulness for Health, a practical guide to relieving pain, reducing stress, and restoring well-being, which is You Are Not Your Pain in the U.S. I'm excited for you to hear this episode with Mark and Danny. I always find it fascinating to learn about the research that helps us to understand how we work as living organisms, and I couldn't wait to find out more from Mark and Danny about these feeling tones that they've been investigating. Their insights can help you get a deeper understanding about how you experience life, and these insights can help you to have more intentionality about how you live and how you respond when you get hit with the unexpected things that pop into anyone's life. So be sure to check out their new book, Deeper Mindfulness, which has a lot of practical exercises to really get the most out of what they've discovered. And quickly before we get started, a word about Camuso. Take control of your stress with this necklace that is not only beautiful, but powerful. It works within seconds, has zero maintenance, and it helps you to increase your focus, lower your heart rate, sleep better, and reduce your anxiety. It's such a great product. Check out episode 240, where I talked to the founder, Todd Steinberg. That episode is packed with useful insights about how to calm your body and mind. Use promo code KaraGoodwin15 and get 15% off. And check out all of the partners of the Meditation Conversation podcast, which you can get to through themeditationconversation.com. And now enjoy this episode. So welcome, Mark and Danny. What a joy to be with you today. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, likewise. It's always good to talk about these things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I'm really excited about your new book, which talks about feeling tones or Vedanas. Am I saying that correctly? Vedanas? So tell us about this. Tell us about these feeling tones. Right. In the moment that the unconscious mind crystallizes into the conscious moment, there is a very brief pause where the mind categorizes everything. It doesn't judge. It categorizes everything as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that is like the tipping point for all of the subsequent thoughts, feelings, and emotions that follow. And it's of profound importance because it's this tipping point and its significance is we never notice it. You know, it's the foundation stone really of, of our entire lives. You know, everything we think, feel and do is influenced quite profoundly by the feeling tone and we are completely unaware of it. All we are aware of is this cascade of thoughts, feelings and emotions that follow. And this means that in many ways, we're not in full control of our lives at all. We're just pushed and pulled around by, by the feeling tone, totally unaware of it. Mm. So that feeling tone is that categorization? 
yes, it's a very deep-seated feeling. It's almost like a gut reaction. And it appears and it guides everything. And then, then, well, all we are ever aware of is everything that follows. We're not aware of this moment. And the significance is it, it has control over our lives and we're just totally unaware of it. Now, it's very, very important because really the way, well, would you like to ex- explain it a bit more, Mark? I'm going, to, I'm going to dodge the bullet and pass it over to you. <laughs> okay. One of the things that, I mean, the Vedana idea goes right back to the writings, the early writings of the Buddhist texts. It's the second foundation of mindfulness, the first one being the body, which people are very familiar with, the sense of using the body as a grounding, as an anchor for your attention. And people are familiar with the mood states and the mind states that we can get involved with, that which is the third foundation of mindfulness. But the second foundation is this Vedana, this feeling tone, sense of pleasantness or unpleasantness. And as Danny said, it's hidden in plain sight, actually. It doesn't take much to, if you stub your toe, you'll know about it. And before anything else happens, you'll know it as unpleasant. And then you might curse or swear or blame somebody for leaving a toy on the floor or something like that. That comes later. And that very person, I wouldn't say unpleasant. So it goes back for a long, you know, two and a half thousand years. But what Danny was referring to there was the neuroscience, the latest neuroscience, which shows that actually this sense affective judgment, they would call it, or affective tone, just the sheer sense of pleasantness or unpleasantness is a core process to all emotion. And the way they describe it, and the latest neuroscience, it says that basically we're living inside a simulated world, that the brain, you mean it's very dark in the brain, there's nothing going on but squashy mess there, and yet we perceive color and shape and form other people and so And the mind is having to create this world, or the brain is having to create this world, and it does so to save energy, it does so by predicting what we're about to see or hear, smell, or taste, and even our interception, our internal body sensations are predictive in the sense that if you're walking, not doing mindful walking, if you're just walking on the street, you imagine that you can feel your feet on the ground, but that's a simulation. You know, the brain knows how it feels to you. And you know, so you feel like you're walking, but actually the brain is creating like a, you know, like a streaming video. It's creating moment to moment what you think. When things go wrong, that's when it takes notice and, uh, you know, and an error is created and it looks around, come to your senses at that moment. Now, because you're simulating through mental models all the time, your world, one of the critical things is what are the elements of that simulation? It turns out this affective, this Vedana, as they called it two and a half thousand years ago, now affective judgments or affective tone, this just sheer sense of pleasantness. Unpleasant is one of the elements of that, one of the critical elements that gives color to all the creation of the stories we tell about ourselves or the fabrications we make, the sense, the series of mental models that we use that builds up this simulation of the world. And that's why it's so important. It's important in the history of this field, but it's important in the nearest, the recent nearest times of this field as well. So that, thank you for explaining that. And I'm really curious about how this research has zeroed in on this kind of like 
is it precognitive? Like it's right before we actually have time to form our opinion about things. Well, and like, oh, sorry, please. Yeah, it is actually just at the moment the mind crystallizes, really. So it's, if you could imagine, there is this huge amount of processing going on in the brain. And then a small amount of it just tips over into consciousness. And that's, you know, if something is significant or important in some way, then it appears in the mind. But just as it does so, there is this very brief primal reaction, really, primal understanding, categorization. And that is the Vedana. Okay. Yeah, all, we are ever, all we are ever aware of, unless we pay very close attention in a very special way, all we are ever aware of is this cascade of thoughts, feelings, and emotions that follow. So is there some sort of marker within the brain that you were looking for, that researchers were looking for to signify that, that moment of crystallization where there's a different part of the brain that was active before the thought and the feelings kicked in or something like that? Yeah. So what's happening is that the brain is creating these models all the time. So the, there's something called the default mode network, which is what happens when you're at rest in a scanner, which just, it's just a sort of flowing activation backwards and forwards in the middle part of the brain. And that, that connects with these affect systems. So most of the research that's gone on, because this is all being done almost as we speak now, most of the research that's gone on has been interested in emotions. So the emotion of fear and the emotion of sadness. And, and it was thought that we knew exactly what the fear network was and what the sadness network was and what the surprise network was. There's a psychologist called Lisa Feldman Barrett who's written a wonderful book called How Emotions Are Made that shows that actually all we knew about some of these emotional systems wasn't quite right. That it's not always, say, the amygdala, which was always thought to be the fear, the fear part of the fear network. And she said, look, you do experiments and you find that half the time people are afraid and you can see they're afraid and they report fear, but the amygdala isn't lighting up. Oh, really? So she's, she says, so what exactly is going on? And it's always by a process of subtraction that you, she argues that the core process underneath all these negative states, so, and that's the sense of just the core sense of unpleasantness, whether it's sadness or regret or fear, there's this core process there. And, and where is that happening? Well, it's probably not in a particular place in the brain, but in the configuration of the brain. In the network. That right. in the network. So, and it's partly due with the balance between left and right. So there's another psychologist called Richie Davis in Wisconsin, who's done a lot of work on meditation. Some of it with, with monks, some of it with people who've trained or novices who train up over, over time. And he's looked at the balance between different parts of the brain the right and left, and he, he talks about approach versus avoidance motivation or prevention and promotion. So the promotion versus all just positive and negative. So it's very unlikely to be, oh, that we can see that's part of the brain. It's more likely to be a balance, a configuration. But one of the things is that, that and this is the case we made, and the case that meditation teachers have made for many years, that you can train people to become aware of these instant, these moments, which is very obvious in the stubbing toe example, or banging your head or hitting your thumb with a tremor when you're banging in the nail, those are obvious. Actually, this ancient philosophy and indeed this neuroscience says every single moment 
we are aware of some slight pleasantness or unpleasantness, whether it's taste, touch, sound. There's a little balance, a little ripple going on. And that will determine the color of our mood in the next. That's fascinating. So is there is there a difference in the research between like the pleasant and unpleasant or like that categorization that Danny was talking about in the very beginning where he was saying it's either kind of good, bad or neutral? Does it look different to the researchers in terms of that initial kind of precognitive perception? It seems to be a dimension. So although it's easiest to think of it, and it's the simplest thing, is that just there's a pleasant, unpleasantness or neutral in the middle. And that's the way we teach it. Just notice if this sound or this sensation is pleasant or unpleasant. Underneath, however, it's probably a dimensional thing. It probably goes from extreme pleasantness to extreme unpleasantness with a zone of indifference in the middle. And, and typically, the meditation teachers would say, if something is unpleasant, then you react to it by trying to push it away. I don't want this. I don't, you're resisting it. And that's certainly people's experience. And so, for example, in the book, we show how it's possible to notice it and just label it unpleasant and then allow it to be, uh, to have its voice, as it were, without trying to resist it and getting and bargaining with it and pushing it away. It typically, if it's pleasant, people this said, want more of it. You become attached to it. And that's true up to a point. But what many people report is that if pleasant things happen, people actually begin to um, feel, oh, this can't last. So you don't get your hopes up. And there's a whole scale that have been used to ask people when pleasant things happen, when you feel happy and excited, what do you say to yourself? Many people say, oh, I say to myself, don't get your hopes up. Don't get too excited. Things won't last. It's always as if some people get their disappointment in first and they negate any positive feelings. And as Rick Hansen has observed, you know, taking in the positive, taking in good things actually takes longer sometimes than taking in bad things. So we need to cultivate the skill of being able to savor positive moments without getting attached to them. And that's what that's how the meditations unfold in the book. First of all, grounding, then noticing how to prevent the mind, and then introducing people to feeling tone, they did by through the body first, and then through sounds and then thoughts and feelings. Are they pleasant or unpleasant? And then restoring balance in the mind by allowing them, saying it's okay to like this, it's okay to dislike that. And in that way, to allow people to experience the positive and negative without being hijacked by them. That's fascinating and so wise because there's, there is a lot of, you know, spiritual wisdom in that too. There are a lot of spiritual teachings that talk about the new, you know, the coming into a state of neutrality and out of duality. And it makes me think too, culturally, like has this, I presume that the the majority of the studies have been on Western culture because some of that is like a cultural thing of like, you know, well, let's not get too excited. Let's, you know, <laughs> let's look at this from all angles. And, yeah. you know, some cultures are less inclined, you know, it just, and it's for better or worse, you know, there are positives and negatives to all of that. But has it been primarily, is this more of a Western study, I presume? Yeah. The studies of what's called dampening, which is the idea of let's not get too excited, 
those have been studies in the Western world predominantly. But it's interesting that when these ideas have been shared with our colleagues in, in Hong Kong and China, in New Zealand, where there's the indigenous population as well as the Western population, there is a sense of recognition of just these little tendencies to, to get involved. I mean, I was listening to a New Zealand teacher talk, teaching about Vedana and feeling tone recently. And she said, we're always arguing and bargaining with pleasantness. I thought a lo lovely expression, arguing or bargaining. And I think sort of sense in which anything that reaches, as Danny said, reaches a threshold of pleasantness or unpleasantness. There's always the mind wants to get involved and do something other than just allow it to pass by. And yeah, yeah. What do you think of the cultural thing, Danny? Well, very much so. I mean, it's not just Western. I think it may be not accepting the pleasant reaches its pinnacle in, in British culture. <laughs> <laughs> I think America's a bit better at accepting good things. <laughs> we're we're uh, a bit suspicious over if something good happens over here. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny because I catched myself that way. And, you know, I was sharing with Mark before we started recording that I lived in England for four, year, four years and I've been married to a British man for 20 years almost. So I'm very familiar with the culture there. And, you know, it does have that overlay to it of just caution, you know, yeah, um, yeah. but I find my, I was noticing this like just a couple of months ago where I was having a bad day. I mean, I had labeled it. I had just like a couple of things had gone wrong and I decided that this day is bad. And I started looking for ways to validate that, you know, things around, I was like, it's like I put on my cloud colored spectacles and I wanted to be right. And I wanted to prove to myself, you know, that, yeah. yeah, this day is out to get me or whatever it was. And I realized what I was doing, I was like, why do I want to be right about this? You know, there's still oh, yeah. room for good things to happen, but you know, yeah. it's, 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 it's funny yeah. creatures. Yeah. We are yeah. totally yeah. funny creatures. One of the things that the neuroscientists are discovering is that when, while the brain is doing all this action, the brain is never tired. It never sits there waiting for something to happen. It's always working, just like the liver is always working and the heart's always working. So the brain's always working. And the, one of the questions is, well, what's it doing all this time? It's making predictions. It's sorting out memories. It's creating counterfactuals of what might happen if, what might happen. Yeah. And one of the elemental sort of aspects of what the brain is doing is it works through creating and simulating action. What action am I going to take? here and there and everywhere. We even see the world through possible actions. So we don't see the world just as a passive thing. We're always, as it were, on the move, always seeing what should I do with this? And so you could see action as a fundamental particle of the mind, as it were, just like it's a fundamental particle of all stories, you know, stories, children's stories, novels, go from action to action. That's what keeps the story going. That's what keeps the mind engaged, action. And one of the things that happens is as we're tossing and turning or in a busy day or a difficult day, the mind is creating many, many actions, many of which we'll never actually take because it's creating sort of the counterfactual. What if, what if, what if? And it classically, of course, if we worry, but also if we're ruminating and brooding about the past, that's all the actions we think we should have taken. And the body's system is being geared up action that it's not going to take. So. When we've introduced feeling tone during the book, there comes a point when the meditation is focused on just saying to yourself on an out breath, 
no action needed right now. No action needed right now. I'm going to press. And it's extraordinary that just, it can really, you can always feel the shoulders going down. And it seems to not only calm the mind, but also give the insight, which is, well, I didn't know how busy my mind was until that moment. But it's made this shift. So there must have been so much action going on that I didn't even know about because the mind and brain is really good at, you know, giving us all this information and having it ready to hand. But in order to do that, it creates all these, you know, which action loops that we're not going to need. So it's really nice occasionally to say, no action needed right now and just. Yeah. I mean, it really makes sense when you, we mentioned earlier about we live inside, I suppose, a personal simulation. You know, we conjure up these entire worlds for ourselves and it is absolutely real. This is how we do make sense of the world, that the mind is predicting what is about to happen. And that makes perfect sense because most of the time the world is predictable. It allows the, it frees up an awful lot of mental space. You know, if the mind is predicting what is about to happen, it gives us the time and mental space to make sense of the world. And in fact, we only ever really pay attention and notice the world when something goes wrong. If we trip over, suddenly we are aware that we have tripped over. And whereas if we hadn't tripped over, our simulation of the world would have just carried on seamlessly. We would have just carried on and not noticed the world at all. We would still be living inside this wonderful, almost perfectly accurate simulation. The data from our senses is only really used to check the accuracy of the simulation. And if it notices that the simulation isn't almost perfectly accurate, the new data is incorporated into our simulation and we just carry on barely noticing. It's only when we make a, you know, a, you know, a reasonably big mistake that we are aware of the world. Yeah. And then it's interesting how that comfort and predictability affects yeah. us because of course, a large, like you say, a large percentage of the time we know what to anticipate and that is what gets reflected back, but not always. Yeah. And so it yeah. can, and it's kind of like the more we see this repetition of like, I know what's going to happen and then it happens and I know what's going to happen and then it happens. And then when it doesn't work that way, I mean, I'm thinking of like my children, you know, who yeah. like, God forbid that something unpredicted happens. It's like, it can really throw things into, you know, yeah. it can throw a spanner in the works. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put it, yeah. I'll put it in ways that British people yeah. would appreciate. <laughs> we don't say it that way, but, but yeah, you can see that how, which kind of begs the question of like, is it almost a disservice that we're doing to ourselves when the more we're in comfort because ultimately life is going to happen. Absolutely. I mean, the significance really is our simulation can drift very, very slowly away from the real world, as it were. And that is probably the origin of an awful lot of mental distress and maybe even mental ill health, is that when we lose contact with the world, the simulation becomes less and less accurate. And if that lower accuracy level is reflecting a you know, depressing, stressful anger, anxious situations that are existing only in our mind, you know, that is 
going to significantly affect our mental health and general well-being. Now, what Vedana does is because we become aware of the moment, the foundation stone really of our thoughts, feelings and emotions, it means that our simulation of the world is actually accurate or reasonably accurate. And that allows us to, you know, live a, you know, hopefully happier and more fulfilling life because we're actually living in a more accurate simulation rather than an inaccurate simulation. Uh, so that's the significance really of Vedana and the program in our book, Deeper Mindfulness, allows you to reconnect with the, uh, with the real world, you know, at a deeper and more fundamental level. Mm. Now, the yeah. one thing I really must emphasize at this point is it sounds like we are saying that if you're anxious, stressed or depressed or in pain, that you're somehow making those feelings up. And actually, no, you're not. They are absolutely real. It's just the foundation stones or the origins of your mental distress are just different to what you may have expected. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I also wonder, too, as we're talking about this, there's a there's an element of it. And with mindfulness in general of kind of completing the experience of the person, because. We can be, you know, different people have different orientations in terms of their interaction or their identification with the physical, with yeah. the emotions, with the mental. And it seems like it's this way to, I mean, particularly mindfulness in general, maybe I don't know as much with the feeling tones. I mean, are you with the feelings? Is there a, a bodily feeling that it comes into play as well? Weird. It's yeah. Different. Yeah. yeah. So are you asking there whether feeling tone is experienced through the body or are you asking whether the body has a feeling tone? With your book and with the research, if it's taking into account like a physical feeling in addition to kind of the noticing, the categorization of feeling. Yeah. So there's two ways in which the body involves. First of all, the body's involved in the sense that feeling tone is very closely linked to interoception. That's the internal sense of the state of the body. And it's closely related to the body's need to keep everything in homeostasis. And so, and all the organs of the body are keeping the body in a chemical homeostasis. And the parts of the brain are responsible, especially the hypothalamus, for example, for keeping our temperature and our hunger and thirst all in homeostasis, so that we feel thirsty, we go to get a drink, and it restores the balance. So, and it looks as if this, just this basic feeling of pleasant, unpleasant is very closely linked to that. And that's partly because when you think about it, even a single-celled organism, right at the start of evolution in even simple bacteria, need to know what's toxic and what's nutritious. So it moves away from one and towards the other. It's not a fear-based thing that hasn't evolved yet. It just this is where I'll get more food. This is where I'll get less food or it's a toxic environment. So every cell in our body, as it were, has evolved to recognize some sort of sense of pleasantness or unpleasantness, something that will keep the organism alive or and thriving versus, you know, not doing so. that's a very bodily thing. Now, whether you can feel every single pleasant or unpleasant in the body, it's got to be there in some way, but it might be so subtle you don't recognize it. So, for example, if I said to you, think of the smell of fresh bread, 
you would probably know whether that felt to you pleasant or unpleasant mm-hmm. without actually having to think about where's my, what does my body think about this? Or, you know, yeah. And also if I said, what about the sight of a greasy pan that's unwashed? No. You'd probably think, mm, okay, yeah, not so pleasant probably. And again, you don't have a big bodily reaction to that. You know, you can read out straight away. Yeah, smiling, smiling children, pleasant. Fresh bread, yeah, pleasant. Greasy pan, that garbage on the street blowing around, unpleasant. Yeah, and you can feel a bit of frown on the face, maybe a bit of that going on, but it's very subtle. But there is, so the body's involved, but it may be so subtle that we're even not aware of it, but we can do the readout. We know that's not unpleasant. The really good experiment on this that a colleague of mine did in which he just presented people with videos of things that were either from the kitchen or from the garage. So little things like a coffee mug or a drill. Okay. And all people have to do is say, is this from the garage or is this from the kitchen? Is this household or garden type of thing? Yeah. But the clever thing was that's what people had to do. But the things they were seeing were either, and these were right-handed participants, right? They were either with the, so you could have grasped them. So the coffee mug was with its hand on the right-hand side or the drill was facing so you could pick it up or it was the other way around. Yeah. So you'd have had to turn it round and do more. And it just showed these things in there. They were going, yeah, that's kitchen. Yes, that's garage. That's, yeah. And, but he was measuring the smiling muscle. And even though they didn't recognize pleasant or unpleasant, they smiled more if the object was something they could have grasped easily. That sense of fluency, it shows, it shows how action is important, that we see the world through possible action. So here were people responding with a sort of a small smile that they even couldn't detect themselves, but the instrument could, when the thing they were observing was grasped, and not when the thing they were observing would have taken a bit more effort. So the body's really involved in these things in very subtle ways, but we don't need to know what's going on in the body to be able to make those judgments about pleasant or unpleasant. That is really fascinating. Wow. So, so tell us how the research that you've done into the Vedanas and the feeling tones and the practices that you've developed, these ways that people can utilize that you talk about in your book and the meditations and so forth. What are some of the ways that people can, could expect that this would help them? Over to you, Danny. Do you want to start on this? Yeah, I mean, there was Mark and his colleagues at Oxford did a nice clinical trial spread, well, based mostly in, in the UK, but also in New Zealand and South Africa and Hong Kong, so across cultures, and found that it was, you know, significantly helpful for relieving anxiety, stress and depression. You know, it's too early to say whether it's more effective than conventional mindfulness, but the interesting thing is, it, you know, it most definitely works. And this is a new program that has only been developed a couple of years ago. And our hunch is it will help people who've maybe gone through a traditional mindfulness program, such as MBCT or MBSR, maybe used one of the programs from our previous books. And it, so it will enhance and deepen their own practice. 
But the interesting thing is, it's just as effective for novice meditators. And, you know, that, that's really quite significant. So it can help, you know, a, a broader range of people. And it's also quite interesting that, you know, many people will have done a conventional mindfulness course and, you know, they might not have found it as helpful or they might have fallen off the wagon halfway through the course and it can help those people as well. So, you know, people get benefits in different ways from different programs and, you know, if there's another program that people can try, that's great because it will help the people who may not have got ben benefit from conventional mindfulness. One of the things we're able to do with this program is to, because now we're in a period of downloads instead of CDs. In 10, 15 years ago, you had to have a CD wrapped in the book, but you could only do a limited number of meditations there. Now in the era of downloads and streamable, we've been able to provide shorter, BGM, longer meditations that people can sit it in with their lives. Both, you know, going through this eight-week program, asking people to see if they can do 10 minutes. And if they can do two 10 minutes a day, that's great. Or one period, 20 minutes. There's now research showing that whether you do two of 10 or one of 20 makes no difference. And somebody else's lab has found that. So, and then gradually starting with finding your ground in week one, also using not just the breath for that, because the breath is of course, wonderful at stabilizing. Some people, especially of course, over the pandemic sound, the breath wasn't a neutral and pleasant thing to focus on. So, and there's a lot of work now by somebody called David Trinitan on trauma-sensitive mindfulness. That is mindfulness, which encourages people to meditate, but to do it very much at their own pace, the toe in the water, just in case it just brings difficult memories to mind of things that are going on with them now or that went on in the past. And so this course has been designed very much with that sense of reminding people they have choices. So we've given a number of different types of meditation and lengths of meditation that people can use as a gateway into the program. And we, we start with not just the breath, but also the feet on the floor and the body on the chair and the hands on the lap so that people can experiment with where do they find is most grounding for them. And then work through with befriending the mind instead of rushing back to the breath or rushing back to the body when your mind has wandered. You actually see mind wandering. That's just, you might see gymnasium equipment when you go to the gym, you know, you go to the gym in order to practice with something. Well, when you meditate, the gymnasium equipment comes to you in the form of mind wandering. So it's not a mistake, it's need to start meditating. So it's not about clearing the mind, it's about using mind wandering to your advantage and say, oh, there's another one and cultivating yeah. a sense of appreciation of what the mind is trying to do for you. As we say, it's working all the time, just like your heart and your liver. So why criticize it when it shows up, when you're meditating? Instead, you say, oh, it's amazing work you're doing. And you thank the mind before coming back to the body, coming back to the breath. And then we unfold the feeling tone and the allowing feeling tone and the no action needed. And then we use all of these new skills to turn towards difficult things that have been going on with you. And then to how to deal with when your motivation goes, when you've been so absorbed with something that your motivation for everything else is shot to pieces and you just can't get zest into life. Show how to, how to deal with joylessness, which a lot of people experience when they've been down, depressed, or busy or exhausted. And so that's the unfolding of the eight weeks is with 
lots of different options for people to, to download and try out to see what works for them. It's different for different people who suspend. Yes, I suppose it's a, a more caring and compassionate program because it pulls in an awful lot of the more recent research, which shows actually you know, kindness and compassion towards yourself is absolutely crucial if you want to make progress. I mean, in the various ancient traditions, such as Buddhism, that was well known, but it, that was kind of lost in the translation to Western culture, really. We felt that, you know, we are such a driven culture that we felt that when we took up meditation, we had to drive ourselves forward with it rather than just letting everything move at its own pace. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love that. So when you talk about this being a program, is this like an online program that people can join at any time? Or do you have a start date coming up? Or can you tell us a little about that? Yeah. So people can use the book as the program and download. And there's, uh, there's QR codes in the book. So they can go straight to the website and download it from the book. Oh, great. Uh, so that's, and then work through week by week. So the book has two or three chapters of introducing the science of it, the sort of the framework, and then people and then some practicalities and then straight into the week one, week two, week three. And people can just use it to guide, just to take them by the hand and take them through. And then we've got some examples of people who've done the program that people can, can see if those are their examples as well. But the Oxford Mindfulness Foundation is also teaching this program and all the Oxford Mindfulness teachers are able to. And there's basically a program virtually any time of day for people to hop onto if they want to join a class. And people can just get to the Oxford Mindfulness Foundation or Oxford Mindfulness Center. And then if you look at and find a, find a class and people will they'll be able to click on to find a class and register for, a, for an online program if they want to. Wonderful. But the book itself contains the, I said, the entire eight-week program. We say eight weeks, but you could do it over eight months if you prefer. Mm -hmm. You know, The important thing is to do it at your own pace so that you feel comfortable with it. You literally take out your smartphone, point it at the QR code. The meditations will appear on the screen. You choose which one. You know, if you're feeling slightly on the back foot, you might just do a 10-minute meditation. If you have the time, you could do a 20 or a 30-minute version of it. And the program just leads you by the hand, you know, over eight weeks or eight months, however you want to do it. Oh, beautiful. Wonderful. Well, as we wrap up here, can you just remind everybody, because the book's not out yet here in the U.S., right? Well, actually, it will be by the time yes. this this launches. Was it July 5th, you want to say? I don't know. Sometime second week in July, I think. I think yes. it's pre-ordered now, though, from all the bookshops and different places of getting the books. So, And it's called Deeper Mindfulness, The New Way to Rediscover Calm in a Chaotic World. Deeper mindfulness. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. What a rich and delightful discussion we've had today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Cara. Thank, thank you very, very much. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love to ask you for one quick favor, and that's to share this episode with one person who you think will benefit from it. Let them know you're thinking about them by sharing this episode with them right now. Thank you, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.